And if you have a Bible, please open it up to chapter 4 of Romans. If you're using the Bible in the chair in front of you, you'll find Romans 4 on page 797. If you're sitting in the lounge and you want to come in here, there's some empty seats now. So Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Where do you turn when you need to remember who you really are and where you're supposed to be going and why you're doing what you're doing in the first place? Well, if you're an organization or you're a business or you're a country even, um, you might want to ask, who was our founding father? Uh, and what were they about, right? As Americans, we um, tend to turn to George Washington and the other founding fathers uh, to remember their example and their ideals and what they stood for. If you're Apple, maybe you turn to Steve Jobs and you ask what he would have done. There's even a book out now called What Would Steve Jobs Do? <laughs> well, if you're a Jew like the Apostle Paul arguing with fellow Jews about what their faith is about, you're bound to turn to Father Abraham. Abraham was the first father of the Jewish faith. God had called Abraham out of his pagan life in Ur of the Chaldees and made Abraham amazing promises. God had, had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And Abraham went. But when he got to the land, God showed him things didn't go so well for him there. First of all, there was a famine in the land right when he got there. And Abraham had to beat a hasty retreat to Egypt just to find food to survive. Then later, when he did get back to the promised land, Abraham's nephew Lot, who was with him, wound up getting the best land. And, and Abraham existed on what was left as a, an immigrant, a, a foreigner, an outsider, not owning an acre of land himself and, and having no children to, to share it with, but just tending his sheep out there in the barren hills, waiting for God to bless him. And all the while, Abraham was growing older. But then sometime later, Genesis 15 tells us that the word of the Lord came to Abraham again in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. But Abraham complained, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the stars, at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then the Lord said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then the writer of Genesis concludes, which tells the story with these words that the Apostle Paul picks up in our passage this morning. Abraham believed the Lord. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, then the story of Genesis continues and we find out that some 13 years later, God went on to make a covenant with Abraham, a treaty, a legal agreement, promising to give Abraham and his descendants all the land around him. 
And as a sign of that covenant, as a, a tangible, legal seal and proof, God had all the males in Abraham's household be circumcised. Circumcision set them apart as, as belonging to the covenant people whom God uh, had made this agreement with. Later, God did give Abraham a son through his wife, Sarah, though even though she was barren and, and even though both of them were well past the age where they could bear children. God did this miraculous act of, of new life um, and everything else that God did for Abraham. He did them sh- slowly. He did them surely, fulfilling the promises in his time that he had made to Abraham. And Abraham, for his part, proved in many ways to be a model follower of God. Abraham had graciously allowed his nephew Lot to get away with claiming the best part of the land. Then Abraham risked his his life and and, and that of his men to rescue Lot when Lot got mixed up in the uh, bad company he had chosen to keep through the poor choices he made. Later, Abraham demonstrated his hospitality and his generosity in in preparing a feast for three mysterious visitors who who came to visit him. And then Abraham selflessly and and mercifully mercifully pleaded that God would not destroy the the wicked city of Sodom, which God was intending to destroy. Finally, to top it all off, Abraham demonstrated a willingness to, to let go of his very most prized possession, his own beloved son Isaac if that's what God required of him. For all these reasons, as far as the Jews of Paul's day were concerned, Abraham, their founding father, was a spiritual stud. They were proud to be his descendants, to belong to the God that Abraham had served, to be a part of the covenant people that uh, that God had selected to be his own, beginning with Abraham. Jews wore circumcision as a badge of honor for all of this. And they gladly tried to live righteously like Abraham, keeping the commandments that God later gave them through Abraham's descendant Moses. To give you an idea of of how the Jews viewed Abraham, listen to just uh, two quotes um, from a couple important Jewish writings from the couple hundred years right before the time of Paul. The first is from the Jewish book of Jubilees. It says, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. And second, from the book of Sirach, no one has been found like Abraham in glory. That's our founder, the Jews thought, spiritual stud, model of righteousness and character. But now here in Romans, Paul comes along and says to the Jews, think again. Think again about who our founding father was. Sure, Abraham turned out in the end to be a paragon of virtue. That's always God's goal for us. That's the goal of grace, as um, Debbie reminded us, and as her class will remind us this morning. But, but who was Abraham when God first found him? Well, let's think about this. Abraham was probably an idol worshiper, a guy whose background was from the pagan land of Babylon. A guy who the first thing we see him do, if you read Genesis 12, when he goes to Egypt, is he gives in to fear, and he lies about his wife Sarah, saying that she's his sister. And so he gets her taken away from him, and almost married off to someone else. And it's only when God intervenes that their marriage is uh, saved. You wonder how long it took Sarah to forgive Abraham for that. (laughs) 
And so the question Paul is arguing with the Jews about here is this. Was Abraham, our founding father, righteous or not? Now, before we we turn to Paul's answer to this question, let's review what this word righteous means. Righteous, righteousness. We tend to think of of it as as meaning moral or or virtuous or or godly or, or good. And it does mean all those things secondarily, but that's not what righteousness means in its essence. In its essence, righteous has to do with our relationships. It has to do with whether we're in right relationship with other people and especially with God. To put it another way, righteousness has to do with whether we've fulfilled the demands of our relationships. So, for example, on the day that I married Anne, we made a covenant together. And I promised to love her, to comfort her, to honor and keep her for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. And forsaking all others to keep myself for her alone so long as we both shall live. Remember that, Anne? Yeah. (laughs) And, And so to the extent that I've done these things faithfully, I'm righteous in relation to her. To the extent that I haven't, I'm unrighteous. If I've done them faithfully, if I'm righteous in relationship in relation to her, then we're in, a, we're in a right relationship. I've fulfilled the demands of our relationship. That's primarily, first, fundamentally, what righteousness is. And likewise, for God's covenant people, there's a relationship between God and them. And the covenant sets out what the responsibilities are for God and for the people. And to the extent that God keeps his part of the agreement, which is the promises that he's given... To the extent that God keeps those, he is righteous. And to the extent that God's people keep their part, which is the laws, the commands that God listed out through Moses, then the people are righteous. And in the case of a covenant, since it's a legal agreement, if there's any question or argument among the parties about who or did or didn't fulfill their responsibilities, the matter can be settled in the courts. And a judge will decide who's righteous and who's unrighteous in regard to the relationship. Remember, we looked at this image of the courtroom last Sunday morning, if you were here. God is, is uh, one of the covenant parties in the trial. But God is also the judge, since he's the highest authority there is. So he wears two hats, uh, or hat and wig, I guess. Um, and, and as judge, God declares who is righteous and who is not. If God declares us righteous, or to use the synonym Paul uses, if God justifies us, that means God is saying that we've fulfilled the demands of the relationship and things are right between him and us. So, was Abraham, the founding father of the Jewish faith, righteous before God or not? Many Jews thought he was. They admired him. They sought to emulate him. But Paul says... Abraham is not righteous for the reason you think he is. You think he's righteous because he obeyed God. He was a man of virtue. He circumcised uh, himself and his family. Circumcision, you know, was made them part of the, the covenant people. And so he and they were righteous. You think Abraham's righteous because of what he did, his works. But that's not what the Bible says. Paul's reminding his fellow Jews. Look more closely at at the scriptures and see when and why God actually considered Abraham to be righteous. 
Because here's the amazing thing. God justified Abraham. God declared Abraham to be righteous before there was even a formal covenant between God and Abraham. And certainly before Abraham had done anything to fill his responsibilities to God. Before Abraham had even started acting righteously in a consistent way, God had already declared that he was righteous. Listen again to how Genesis 15 puts it. Paul quotes it here in verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. On what basis did God declare Abraham to be righteous? Not on the basis of what he did, because in Genesis 15, he he hadn't done anything much yet. But rather, it was on the basis of the fact that Abraham believed God. Remember, God had come to Abraham and said, hey, I'm your great reward. And Abraham had, had complained and said, what good is a reward when I have no children? I'm getting old. My family has no future. You've you've given me no heir to to pass on my stuff, my legacy, or any of these promises or blessings to. It's all going to end with me in a few short years. And one of my servants is going to inherit everything I've got. And God said, oh no. Look at the stars, Abraham. Can you count them? That's how many children you're going to have. And though Abraham was an old man, and though his wife was an old lady who had never been able to conceive in her whole life, though it seemed impossible that they'd have children, what did Abraham do? He believed God. He put his trust in God's promise. And God said, wow, you believe me. You trust me. I love that so much that as far as I'm concerned, things are right between you and me. So God received Abraham's faith and credited it to him as righteousness. So now Paul switched the metaphor. Rather than viewing God as the judge in the courtroom, Paul's now viewing God as a business owner who keeps the books. And um, it's as if God is a bookkeeper who who keeps a ledger on all of his employees, kind of like Santa Claus is a list of who's been naughty and who's been nice. God, the boss, keeps an account on everyone. And God keeps track of, of, of what we each owe him and, and whether we've fulfilled the requirements of our relationship with him. In other words, are we righteous or aren't we righteous? And what do we owe God? Well, Paul, if you've read the Romans, we've been going through chapters 1 to 3, the book to the Romans. Um, we, we saw that, that um, if God is the most amazing, good interesting and exalted being in the universe. And if God made us all and and created everything around us, giving us our lives and everything else we have, then we owe God our thanks and our gratitude. We owe him um, our respect and our honor and our worship. We owe him our allegiance and our obedience And God knows exactly whether or not we've lived up to those responsibilities. God knew all this about Abraham back in Genesis 15. And what does Genesis say God did in the case of Abraham? God went into Abraham's ledger and credited Abraham with righteousness. 
Why? Not because Abraham had actually fulfilled all the demands his relationship with God required. No, Abraham had already failed in plenty of ways. So on what basis did God credit Abraham righteousness then? Simply because Abraham put his faith, put his trust in God and God's promises. Do you see how high God values, highly God values faith? So much so that, that God said to Abraham, wow, you trust me. I'll take that and I'll count it good for everything else you owe me. Verse 4, Paul continues. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but an obligation. In other words, if Abraham had actually done everything God had required of him, he would have earned his righteousness. And God would have owed it to him. The way a boss owes an employee their paycheck at the end of the pay period. But Abraham didn't work for his righteousness. No, God gave it to him as a gift. God justified him. God declared him righteous even though Abraham wasn't. And so Paul makes this utterly scandalous claim about God here in verse 4. Listen. God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. (laughs) Abraham was ungodly. He was a pagan, Chaldean, a Babylonian. Abraham had just started following God. He cowardly lied about his wife. He was not a righteous man. He was an ungodly man at this point in time. And yet God justified him. God declared him to be righteous. Now, question, is this fair? (laughs) Is it fair that, excuse me, is it fair that God takes ungodly people, wicked people, and declares them righteous, declares them not guilty in the halls of justice? Is it fair that God goes into the ledgers of heaven, into the entries of ungodly people, and writes that they've perfectly fulfilled the demands of his righteousness. No, it's not fair. (laughs) It's not just. In fact, it's utterly a scandalous miscarriage of justice. God has been cooking the books. (laughs) Listen to Proverbs 17, 15. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. Well, if God detests this sort of injustice, how can God turn around and do exactly the same thing, acquitting the guilty? Well, let me tell you a story about this. A a few years ago, um, I was chatting um, with a few dads at a a Boy Scout camp. I was there with Josiah. We were at a camp out, and the the topic of what different churches believed came up. And uh, someone mentioned that some Protestant churches believe in grace. And uh, one dad said, yeah, I've heard of that word, grace. What, What does that mean? Um, and I thought, boy, here's an opportunity. So, you know, I launch in about how it means that God doesn't give you what you deserve. You, you do bad stuff and God forgives you. He, he treats you like it didn't even happen. He treats you better than you deserve. You, you might be a horrible axe murderer. You might be a nice, clean-cut guy. But, but if you've got God's grace, he treats you the same either way. He loves you. He forgives you. He wants to bless you. And do you know what that dad said? He said, that's a terrible thing to believe. That's not fair. That makes no sense. And he's right. 
Treating people like that is, is completely unjust. It makes God completely unrighteous, except for one thing. And that's what we saw last week in chapter 3. And that is that God actually has demonstrated that he is righteous. He is just, even though it doesn't seem that way. God has made all things right. He has made all things fair. And do you remember how he did it? Through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, God took on himself the punishment that we deserve for our unrighteousness. Through Jesus Christ, God fulfilled the demands of our relationship with God for us. You could think of it this way. God says to us, you have a huge balance owing on your account. In fact, you're so far behind that you're never going to be able to catch up. But Jesus has this huge positive balance in his account. And I'll tell you what, if, if you'll trust him and follow him, I'll transfer his balance to your account and consider your account to be in the black and, and you and I to be on good terms again. And that, Paul says, is what God did for Abraham when he justified Abraham, the ungodly founding father of our faith. What an amazing deal this was for Abraham. And what an amazing blessing it is for anyone to whom God credits righteousness apart from them having to earn it. And to drive this home in verses 6 to 8, Paul then quotes a psalm of David, Psalm 32. These are some of my favorite words in Romans. Listen. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. Those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Did you hear that? Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Count against them. There's that bookkeeping language again. Blessed is the one whose sin, whose debt, the Lord wipes from the ledger next to their name. David knew this well. Because like Abraham, David was in many ways an ungodly person. I know we think of him as this great hero. But David one time got so angry, he, he almost killed a guy named Nabal just for insulting him and his whole family too. Later, of course, David infamously slept with the wife of Uriah, who was one of his trusted officers, who was out on the battlefield faithfully risking his life for David. And meanwhile, David's back home sleeping with his wife. And, and then what did, what did David do to, to cover it up? He then kills pure Uriah so he can marry Uriah's wife. And David's family was a mess too. He couldn't discipline his children even after they'd raped and murdered each other. And yet, God wasn't crediting any of that failure or unrighteousness to David's account. No, God was forgiving David's transgressions. God was covering David's sins. God was never counting them against him. And David said, that is a blessing. It's a blessing to be an ungodly person and to have God credit righteousness to you nevertheless. I can't resist quoting Bono at this point. I haven't quoted him in a while. Bono once said that the scriptures are brimful of hustlers, murderers, cowards, adulterers, and mercenaries. And that used to shock me. But now it is a source of great comfort. 
Why? Because Scripture is the story of how God justifies ungodly people. How God welcomes such people in as full participants in his family. Abraham was the first, the founding father. And when an ungodly person like Abraham is the founding father of God's people, what does that mean for the rest of us? It means that, that, that when it comes to whether God loves you or not, your religious credentials no longer count for anything. Your religious credentials no longer count to get you in or to keep you out. You know, that's one of the reasons that the Pharisees got so mad at Jesus. Because the, the truth is that there's a little, um, or rather, and the truth is, the truth is that there's a little Pharisee in each of us. Maybe more than a little. That's why the Pharisees are in the Bible. They're there for us. Um, and so that's why we find God's lavish grace hard to take. The, the writer Robert for our cape on reflecting on this said, it's just misery to try to keep count of what God is no longer counting. Because your entries keep disappearing. <laughs> Rick Watts, who was a New Testament professor of mine, uh, compared the Pharisees to investors who had invested all of their wealth in, say, the bond market. And, and then Jesus comes along with the good news that the bottom has dropped out of the bond market. And now their bonds are worthless. They're not worth the paper that they're printed on. And that's what Paul is saying is true. When we're trying hard to keep God's commands as a way of pleasing God and earning a place in God's good graces, that market has crashed. Concerned. The only currency that's worth anything with God anymore is faith in Jesus Christ. And actually, Paul's point is that, that it's always been that way, in fact. It's, it's been about faith all the way back to Abraham. And so Paul points out in verses 9 to 12, we're just going to go quickly over this part. This means that, that you don't have to be a Jew to claim Abraham as your founding father. Remember, circumcision was what separated the Jews who were in as part of God's family from the uncircumcised Gentiles who were out. But Paul points out that actually Abraham, the founding father of the family, was credited as righteous by God long before he got circumcised, 13 years to be exact. So Abraham became righteous while he was still an uncircumcised Gentile. And why did God declare him righteous again? Because of his faith. Because it's actually faith, not circumcision, that determines whether you're in God's family or not. So Paul concludes that Abraham is the father of the Gentiles who have faith, just as well as of the Jews who have faith. Abraham's the father of the ungodly who put their faith in God, whether Jew or Gentile. Sure, Abraham received circumcision later, but, but circumcision didn't make him righteous or, or guarantee his right relationship with God. No, circumcision was just a sign, a seal of what God had already given him by grace. So that means the door is open to everybody now. Jew, Gentile, churchy, worldly, godly, ungodly. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. 
All that matters is that God is looking for um, all that all that all that God is looking for. I mean, when, when when He's deciding if He's going to consider you to be in a right relationship or not, all that God is looking for is this. This is all that matters. Does she trust me? Does he put his faith in my son Jesus? And that's something that anyone can do. So application. Do you trust God? Have you put your faith in his son Jesus? Are you following him? That, that would be the best way to respond to this message, this passage of scripture. And if you're already doing that, if you're already following Jesus by faith, th then here's the question. How much Pharisee is in you still? Are, are you still keeping score? Are you keeping track of, of how people have wronged you? Of, of how people are not acting as godly as you are? And, and so you're looking down on them or you're judging them. Or, or maybe you're keeping track of yourself. Often we're hardest on ourselves. Maybe you're keeping track of your spiritual successes and, and even more of all your spiritual failures. And you're feeling maybe sometimes a little smug and at other times um, you're feeling unworthy. Um, and so maybe you find yourself saying things like, um, I can't believe God gave me that blessing because I hadn't even been praying about it enough. Or, or I hadn't been very close with God lately. I can't believe he did that for me. And I think God would reply, oh, really, my righteous one? I wasn't even keeping track. Let's pray. God, many of us are here um, because we do believe in grace. And yet, as human beings, we seem... Um, to be kind of hardwired to forget it the next minute, to forget it for ourselves, to forget it for others. Thank you um, that you are righteous and that you found a way um, to settle the score and to restore justice to the universe without giving us each what we deserve. Thank you for being willing to take it on yourself. So that you could treat us much better than we deserve. I pray that you would root that wonderful good news in each of our hearts. That we would know peace. That we would know your love. And that that would overflow into the ways we treat others. Amen.